0: Louis Vierna was a celebrated French organist and composer who was really well known for the unusual circumstances of his death. It happened on an evening in June 1937 in Paris in the Notre Dame Cathedral where he was the principal organist. Vierna was giving a recital having already played there 1750 times. He was almost finished his musical piece and was poised to end with two improvisations. He activated the stops he would use for the final section of the performance, then he lurched forward so his foot came to rest on the low E pedal of the organ. At that moment, as a single bass note boomed out over the expectant audience, the celebrated musician passed away.
1: In any story, the ending is important. It's only when you reach it ...that the whole can be understood. In her book Closure in the Novel... Mariana Turgovnik characterises the end of a story... ...as the place where its point is most pressingly made. The death
0: of Louis Vierne is often presented... ...as the redemptive finale of what had been a difficult life. But can the significance of endings for stories... ...be so readily transposed to a human life... ...with all its endless complexities? even if Vierne himself did often say that his lifelong dream was to die at the console
1: of the great organ of Notre Dame. Ultimology is the study of endings. We're about to tell a story, the story of what happened when an artist, that's me, Fiona Hallinan, and a curator, that's me, Kate Strain, invented a previously non-existent field of knowledge dedicated to the study of endings. How things end why things end, and what sometimes unconsidered or undervalued effects endings have. And what happened when we tried to establish this field of knowledge within a university as a real and active site. We called this the Department of Ultimology.
0: We're here in the Slide Library, where we both studied history
1: of art and architecture a little over 10 years ago a room in the arts block of Trinity College Dublin and the place where we first began to think about ultimology. So we have Romanesque and Gothic in one area, Mm
0: -hmm. we have
1: old architecture
0: over here, and then a lot of it by country, like General, Bruges, Cairo, St Britain, Great Britain, St Albans, (laughs) Stourbridge. I think in a way the idea that for us studying history of art, That images travelled through slides and that we got to know most of the buildings or artworks that we learned so much about through slides is a really kind of vital uh key to understanding how we learned art history how it was taught and how knowledge about art historical events monuments paintings were produced in our in our brains it was such a tactile experience because for every single thing we studied we had to root out and look up a slide
1: and it was totally based in this room and in this place like even coming up the stairs there i remembered the smell and the light and the feeling of the architecture there we go one thing i used to always love about the french cathedrals was that you'd
0: see roger Staley's car pulled up outside the cathedral in every slide yes and some people say it was
1: for scale but i think he just took the photo maybe he was showing off maybe <laughs> because of social media now and just the kind of proliferation Mm. of self-curated identity through image. It's so completely different to our experience here where there was a lecturer who had travelled to this place, took one picture, brought it back, and then it was held like this object in a specific room. What will happen to these slides? Will they be preserved? Who, if anybody, will care for them? Or now that slides are no longer used, How does that change how the history of art is studied? Or what those works from the past mean to the students learning about them today or tomorrow? I guess you have to think
0: when education changes and evolves, things have to be dropped off. Something has to go, things have to die and disappear in order for those changes to be made. Like this now almost absolutely defunct slide library is like a relic of a way that we used to learn about art history. And I guess in every single department in Trinity, there's probably an example of something that's disappeared or some tool of learning or system of knowledge that has been overhauled due to, I mean, technology is
1: one example, but it could be anything. When we first envisaged the Department of Ultimology, we imagined it as a kind of repository of endings where we could collect things that had or were about to become obsolete across different disciplines and beyond. Tools, practices, words, the soul, the cannon, the rainforest, USB, 3G, 4G, bluefin tuna, freshmen, slides, fax machines, the Lone Scholar. We asked Isabel Nolan to speak to us on the ultimological in her practice.
2: Speaking as an artist, confusion can be productive. Finding my way through it throws up new work that demands to be made. These phases are urgent and exciting. But at times, confusion is not revelatory, but disorienting, paralysing. Stuck, incapable of working and fearful that I'll never have work to make again, I call this state of stasis ultimological anxiety. During these periods, I often turn to pre-modern artworks or artefacts. It's possible that I'm hiding out amongst relics, finding pleasure or solace in them that they might never have intended to offer. In my alienated state, I sometimes feel sorry for things in museums, for objects in display cases that are hardly looked at. Their greatest chance of attracting attention is by being especially rare or beautiful. Singled out with a large label, more space or a spot on an audio tour. But beyond a few enthusiasts... It's unlikely that many will pause to look at each coin, pot, seal, painting or statuette when it's displayed alongside dozens of counterparts. And given that they're so often deprived not just of attention, but also of their original context and function, I wonder at how they sit in the world now. Can we still demand relevance from them? Are they still fit to be meaningful?
0: In guiding us to what ultimology might become, Isabel was one of our most trusted and admired collaborators.
2: In London in 2017, I saw a show, in the age of Giorgione. I didn't spend much time with the major devotional paintings of Mary and baby Jesus, who keep each other abundantly occupied. Nor the mythological or religious landscapes where human martyrs suffer the vagaries of living and dead deities. I looked repeatedly at a small number of portraits of people, most, though not all, of them men. Latterly, I discerned one fairly innocuous, if sentimental, pattern to my tastes. I like works where people, be they solitary or in company, appear lonely or vulnerable. I distrust this love of looking at old works in museums. Especially suspect when the world feels somehow out there is this penchant for paintings and statues of dead white patriarchs, saints, martyrs or men of action. Whilst billions of lives are being hard-lived in real time, such ardent attention to redundant portraits, pragmatically speaking, or to antiquated monuments made for virtuous, noble, or simply wealthy figures, many I've barely or never heard of, is hard to explain. In the museum, real life and world at times feel somehow put on hold, provisionally, problematically, and beautifully remote. I don't know if the question to be asked is why a human would, or why a human would not, desire this.
1: We started to seek out accounts of endings across the university from people based there, asking what they could see ebb away in their field of research and how that directly impacted their experience beginning with those close to us, but broadening the orbit then to include people from other backgrounds and contexts.
0: We spoke to Sylvia Draper from the Chemistry Department, which led us to interviewing John Kelly, the resident glassblower for Lab Glassware. What
3: I'm going
4: to do is take some of this glass here off and then just open up the end by blowing
1: it. We met John in his workshop, where he made bespoke pieces for students and researchers, based on their specific requirements. John told us that he was retiring in two years and there was no apprentice being trained to take his place. The workshop was to be closed and the glassware requirements of future students would be met by standardised imports.
5: That's that piece gone. And what we've got to do now is open up the end of it.
1: In these conversations, endings
0: ceased to be dead things and ultimology began to take shape and gain substance as a cross-disciplinary concern.
1: What kind of container could we make to hold conversations around endings? A new discipline? A concept? We wanted to hold on to our freedom in existing as an artistic project, but to gain access to the inner world of the university through how we framed ourselves. We learned that the term department
0: is no longer used by the university in an official sense. It now divides the college into faculties, schools and centres. A department itself is an ultimological organisation, a vacant space that we could occupy.
1: This type of reorganisation of the university illustrates how it too is subject to change and evolution. Disciplines emerge, gain prominence, and then maybe lose relevance. We wondered about the
0: evolution of the university as an institution. How are researchers themselves experiencing shifts around them? And what external forces drive those changes?
1: Perhaps the university could do with the lens of otimology as a way of reflecting back on itself, taking time to analyse what was at risk, what was of value and what might be best gotten rid of. Fortunately
0: for us, this kind of work was already being done in the visionary research centre, Connect,
1: the Centre for Future Networks and Communications. It was around this time that we met Jessica Foley, an artist working in interesting ways within Connect. Jessica was part of the Orthogonal Methods Group, OMG, a group of artists and researchers based there, working in critical and creative tension with technology, who gave the Department of Ultimology a home in the university. One of
6: the things that we're looking at at the moment in Connect is looking back to the past and to the history of ICT information and communications technologies. One great example of, I guess, the origins of telecoms, telecommunications, is the Valencia Island cable. If you look at something like the Valencia Island cable, while the industry has kind of evaporated around it, most of the world's information networks and communications networks rely on undersea cables Most of uh, the way that we use the internet today relies on very material infrastructures that are wires connecting countries, connecting continents that go through big, you know, energy-intensive centres, data centres. These are all very material and very real. But at the same time, on top of that, we have like this kind of mythology around wireless and everything is kind of cloudy. And, you know, we have data clouds and data is something you eat and there's all this kind of rhetoric around that stuff. And there's this kind of sort of mythology then that the materiality of technology is actually non-existent, you know? And I think one of the things that artists engaging with Connect uh, try to do is to to highlight that, that that is a myth, you know, and to highlight the realities of of these infrastructures. A lot of people are doing that now, just really trying to come to terms with it.
0: Ultimology may not be able to provide answers
1: for all of these questions. What it might do is make a space for open and accessible discussion around these urgent issues, or plot a lullaby for an undersea cable.
0: organist Louis Vierne publicly anticipated dying while playing music just as he ultimately did. So maybe it's okay to briefly talk about his passing, not as the death of a person, but rather as the conclusion of a performance. The question of when exactly his final concert ended is an interesting one. Was the ending when the musician lost consciousness? Was it as realisation spread through the audience that the long-held note was not intentional? Was it when his foot finally was taken from the organ's pedal? Perhaps it came much, much earlier, when Vierna played his final fully intentional note as he finished the main section of the recital. Or maybe it was later, when everybody left and the cathedral fell silent except for the faintest, imperceptible resonances of the concert's final note and the audience's
1: shock and concerns. Some endings break time clearly in two. My life was divided when my brother died into the time before and the time after. When his life ended, a version of mine ended too. He was the closest person to me, even if we were not the same. We had the same parents, the same home, the same dinners and lunch boxes and TV shows, the same hurry up, hurry up, it's time for school, hurry up, get in the car, this weather won't last. My life after he died was and is a kind of afterlife, the life I imagine after dying. In the time since then, I realised we are all always living in befores and afters, at the cusp of new afterlives. When my child was born, there was a divide too the life before and the life after. A second after life began.
0: Perhaps every ending has multiple stories. In creating our department, we defined ultimology in broad terms, but the word ultimology had been used previously usually in a religious context, to refer to the end of days.
1: We first came across it in reference to language, in the work of a writer and linguist named Ross Perlin, co-director of an organisation called the Endangered Language Alliance, based out of an office near Union Square in Manhattan. The Alliance is well-placed for the work it does documenting and describing endangered languages, as New York is home to one of the world's most linguistically diverse urban areas. Ross spoke to us about the complexity
0: and subjectivity in the dying of a language, and of the notion of last speakers.
5: Some 200 years ago, the German explorer and naturalist Alexander von Humboldt was searching for the source of the Orinoco River in what is today Venezuela, when he came upon a parrot speaking or chirping the words of an unknown language, at least unknown to to him and anyone else around there, about 40 words of a language that the people in that area said was the language of the Aturas, a now extinct group, whose language at that point was only being carried on by this parrot, which repeated endlessly those, those, those 40 words, which Humboldt wrote down, about 200 years later, an artist in New York, Rachel Berwick, taking those words from Humboldt's notes, taught them, with the help of bird behaviorists and a linguist, to a new group of parrots. And those parrots today are continuing to speak, if you can call it speaking, if you can call it a language, the language of the This is just one story or, or anecdote to, to, to relate the strange ways in which languages may live on and in which the idea that a language doesn't necessarily die exactly or clearly with its last speaker. As of 2005, there were only three speakers of the language Matike, uh, which is spoken on Australia's northern coast uh, along the Timor Sea. Two of them are brother and sister forbidden by their tribal custom from speaking to one another after puberty. Apparently the third doesn't live in the area, and his language variety is substantially different from the other two anyway. The last two speakers of Ayapaneco in Mexico, Manuel Segovia and Isidro Velázquez, refused to speak to each other because of a 50-year grudge. The last two speakers, not willing to even sit down and have a chat, until, strangely... A linguist from California who was studying the language kind of engineered their reconciliation, which apparently was sweetened even more strangely by the fact that Vodafone had decided to sponsor a kind of dictionary, a sort of adopt a word project for Ayapaneco, which seemingly kind of smoothed the way for Manuel and Isidro to talk to one another again. There are problems inherent in the very concept of, of lastness when you deal with something like like language. When the very notion of what a language is, what a speaker is, you know, concepts that, that you would think would be fixed at the core of a discipline like linguistics are actually, in some ways, the most kind of difficult and controversial concepts. Um, you have speakers, you have semi-speakers, you have rememberers, you have descendants. Um, you have shifting notions of what it means to, to speak a language. What might seem like an honorable laying to rest or an important call to arms by saying that a language has died may actually be a kind of peremptory dismissal from the stage of history when what's really wanted or demanded in a community is cultural continuity and a sense of revival for an ongoing group of people because usually when a language ceases to be spoken, the people who spoke it or their descendants are still around. They've just shifted to another language. Of course, there are cases, um, usually cases of genocide or natural disasters, where the speakers themselves uh, are all are all killed at once. But, um, but in many cases, it's it's language shift that's happening, shift to a more dominant language.
1: Language offers an example of the messiness of endings. We should make a joke about breakups here.
0: Yeah. But we do need endings. We long for closure. In the sense of an ending... The literary critic Frank Kermode describes our preoccupation with endings. This is a pervasive aspect of human subjectivity, he says, fundamentally connected with how we relate to our mortality, informing how we perceive
1: time, how we tell stories, and how we ascribe meaning. Dr. Dora Varga researches the history of epidemics and global health from a socialist perspective. She spoke to us about the arc of epidemics and indeterminate endings in disease.
3: In my research, I um, tend to look at epidemics and vaccination, and this uh, has brought me thinking to what happens at the end of a disease, at the end of an epidemic, and what happens after. So I started to think about this in a bit more structured way, and to think if we can challenge this um, epidemic narrative Mm. that um, is often presented to us, as Charles Rosenberg, a historian of medicine, has put it, "It's like a, epidemics are like a play. There are three acts, as if uh, when it's slowly unfolding, and there's a crisis, and then it goes out with a with a whimper." But I was I'm very uncomfortable with that closed narrative that an epidemic or a disease ends and then that's it. The only um, human disease that had been eradicated is smallpox and uh, you know you needed that kind of ending a disease to drive that um eradication program and i don't think anybody would argue that you know we would want to have smallpox back Um, but uh, even smallpox is a is a funny one because it was an eradication program done in the cold war context so they kept vials of smallpox um because there there is this you know there was this fear also of if Smallpox is eradicated, and nobody is vaccinated against it anymore. It could be used as a biological weapon. So they kept um, vials of smallpox in freezers, both in the Soviet Union and in the United States. And this is sort of that mutual assured destruction doctrine of the of the Cold War living in the freezers um, right now. So the disease disappeared from the world, but it keeps living on in freezers. And the Cold War itself, which ended, keeps living on in these freezers in the in the shape of uh, smallpox. of these endings and the the problems that endings might themselves raise is the case of diphtheria which is a very very old disease and it had been a major child killer um, even in the early 20th century and vaccination campaigns, national vaccination campaigns all over Europe started um, in the 40s and 50s and suddenly the cases dropped to almost zero. So. It's clearly a success story. This is a quite terrible disease that suffocates um, children by creating this pseudo membrane in their throat, and it creates this toxin that um, basically poisons all the internal organs. So it's it's not a not a particularly good way to go, but uh, it's a treatable disease. Actually, there's an antitoxin that has been produced since the late 19th century. So it's one of these the oldest biologicals. Um, around that are still used in the treatment and there's the vaccine so we could think that okay so we've pretty much got this diphtheria thing um, covered however what happened because diphtheria disappeared from the landscape it also affected the way that um, pharmaceutical companies tackled and thought about the the production of this treatment there was no more market for the treatment there is not much Um, use for it. However, if the vaccination rates fall or somebody's not vaccinated they can still catch it. And this is what happened in 2015 in Spain when a little boy got diphtheria and because diphtheria hasn't been around, there hadn't been a case for over 20 years in Spain, even doctors had a hard time to diagnose it. So nobody knew for a time that this boy had this disease. And uh, by the time they got to the point where they recognized it and they needed to give the treatment, it turned out that there's no antitoxin in stock in Spain. Actually, there is very little antitoxin in stock in the whole Europe because um, pharmaceutical companies just don't make it anymore. So they shipped in um, antitoxin from Russia and I think from France, if I remember correctly, but it was too late and and the boy unfortunately died. And a couple of months later, a very similar case um, surfaced in uh, Belgium, again an unvaccinated child, again resulting in death. What what we have to know with this antitoxin is that you need to administer it as soon as even there's a chance that this might be diphtheria, because you need to act before the toxin does the, the harmful work. I explored this a bit um, with a historian of medicine and uh, physician Jeremy Green from Johns Hopkins University and um, we published an article in The Lancet on this because what we realized is that sometimes the end of a disease also might come with the, with the disappearance of the infrastructure that might treat it and it creates these really weird um, setups uh, in the United States for instance this uh, drug is not licensed, um, because it's very expensive to hold pharmaceutical licenses, and there's so little needed if there is an unvaccinated case. Uh, The pharmaceutical companies just don't invest in this. So they import it from Brazil, um, one of the only countries that make it. And because it's not licensed, the only way that they can give it um, to people who need it is as a new experimental drug and to frame it as an experiment, a human experiment on this drug. So you have one of the oldest drugs surfacing and being packaged as a new experimental drug because that's the only way to be able to administer it. So these endings are very fragile um, at the same time and uh, can resurface with new beginnings or can bring um, unexpected uh, other endings that might make um, the disease resurface again.
0: Can be complicated, unstable, inconclusive. They also affect and involve bodies, whether human or animal, like the last speakers of a language or microorganic entities stored in vials. Where bodies are implicated, ethics are involved and politics brought into play. For ultimology, this has important consequences.
1: We live in a time that no longer regards the study of history as important. that continually revisits or recycles the past for entertainment, that wears the past as a costume. But a reckless appetite for the new is not opposed to a sentimental preoccupation with the old. Both are ways of denying the continued relevance of the past. One way to avoid this trap is to
0: take endings seriously. In Iceland recently, people gathered to mark the melting of a glacier called Økjökulg. It is accepted that the loss of the glacier, which once measured 38 square kilometres, was a direct result of climate change caused by humans. A funeral was held and a memorial plaque put
1: in place to mark its passing, with a message to possible future generations. This monument is to acknowledge what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. Sometimes an ending should be mourned and memorialised, and we hope to learn
0: from it. But there are other times when an ending must be called for, demanded, initiated. Such is the case with the call for the decolonisation of public space in countries like Belgium.
7: I'm standing at a busy intersection in Brussels called Troon. Crossing before and under me are multiple lanes of traffic, framed on one side by the high walls of a royal palace. In a garden outside the palace, there's a tall equestrian statue on a pedestal. The view of the statue is uninterrupted from every side, visible from the windows of the many buses and cars that cross this city artery each day. The statue is of Leopold II, king of Belgium from 1865 to 1909, known as colonizer of the Congo, who while exploiting the region for rubber, was responsible for an administration of systemic brutality there, including torture and the murder of millions of people. Many argue that this statue and other memorials to Leopold II represent a denial of this history, or an outright dismissal of its importance, and should be removed from public space, or at least mediated with information that would recognise the atrocities that occurred.
0: Laura Sengiumva is an artist and activist from Brussels, who made a ritual that gathered audiences in front of a statue of Leopold II. It was a life-size copy made in ice, and over the course of an evening, the public could come and watch it melt.
4: I'm a Brussels-based artist and architect and researcher who works on decolonialism. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to shape the presence of the African community in Belgium. And by shaping, I mean a lot of things. <laughs> like all kinds of representations. And of course, to put the an end to the colonial propaganda in Belgium, so I consider myself as an activist. It's kind of the summary of how I summarize all my activities. Important thing to say, of course, I'm from, uh, I'm of uh, Rwandan descent, which was a Belgian colony. Rwanda was a Belgian colony at the time. And I was born here in Belgium. I grew up there. I created this project called People, uh, The Melting of Leopold II. (laughs) So this work is uh, yes, it's quite interdisciplinary, it's an installation but temporary, it's interactive also. Uh, but the main <laughs> story is that I created a kind of a ritual for the Belgian citizens so that we could uh, symbolize the disparation of the colonial myth that is very present in the in the Belgian society by melting a statue of Leopold II. So this, is, this was a replica in, uh, in ice. And then uh, with using our body warmth, uh, the body warmth of the collectivity, uh, we could really see the disparation of, yeah, the melting of the ice as, uh, as a symbol of uh, a change that is not visible for the ice. But that's still happening, so it's a bit uh, an ode also to activism and, and hope also, of course, that it is happening. Of course, and why people actually, <laughs> the name also is part of the, the message, let's say. People is actually, um, because there was a play on the pedestal, so I didn't represent Leopold II on his pedestal. I represented it on the, on the ground. Melting on the ground, and the pedestal was uh, upside down, hanging uh, above his head. And uh, with the letter of Leopold, I wrote people just change the letters because it's a statue that uh, Brussels people know that it's very um, always vandalized and this kind of thing because it's uh, it's like a bit it became a bit the voodoo doll of <laughs> of Brussels uh, because it's it's a character that's still very uh, celebrated but also very criticized and all these uneasy feelings are are always put on this statue. So it's the the fact that it disappears also. Yeah, it was actually a radical act to symbolize like a collective will actually.
1: Laura's work spoke of hope and the possibilities of imagining other realities. Ice melts and becomes water. And when we spoke, she mentioned that this simple shift in state was something that the children at the event understood the most. They played in the water of the melted statue and made a fountain. We interested in embodied knowledge, in learning and teaching that is enmeshed with human limitations and potentialities, with subjectivities and emotions, with the stuff of bodies and the matter we interact with.
0: We have a feeling art might be a way of imagining other possibilities, other states, even of imagining afterlives. We return to the words of Isabel Nolan, who described how an encounter with a funerary statue. ...gestured towards the infinite possibilities art can put forth. The place where the capacity of art meets what Ernst Fischer called the necessity of art.
2: A portrait can be a history of tenderness, of consciousness and a record of human death. Dropping, as we most predictably do, like flies. People had experiences and then they died. There were humans living in the world who cared to paint and those who got painted it is a contentious record filled with omissions. Sometimes, though, a particular juxtaposition of lilac blue and pink shadow lends not just volume, but a poetic drama to the soft pleats in a white garment. And so we wonder, not simply who is the person wearing this fine, billowing shirt, but also who made it, maintained it, fastened it upon the sitter that morning with cold or warm hands, and their mind filled with an endless list of other thankless tasks to be done. Clothes from the past often appear uncomfortable, and it's peculiar, difficult to imagine a daily life weighed down by such heavy, exquisite, and presumably odorous fabrics. Sometimes the sitter seems almost a prop, a support to the clothes. The perfection of the starched collar or an intricate, dazzling ruff set off by a pleasant, but unmemorable face. The way a hand emerges from a lace cuff, wrist angled and fingers arrayed, one slipped sexily between the pages of a book, hints at a rakish of learned disposition. Another pale hand, heavily ringed, delicately displaying a memento mori, suggesting an uncommon sensitivity. Often heavy armour is held in place by an inconsequential man, but sometimes the confidence of a set jaw and handsome face is betrayed by the way painted light gleams upon fine armour, breaking its incised decorative surfaces with lines of skeletal white that cruelly and beautifully anticipate the eventual exposure of bone. The critic, James Wood, noted a description in Tolstoy's War and Peace of a man, a boy of 18, facing a firing squad. Just as death impends, he lifts his hand to adjust the knot of his blindfold at the back of his head. It's digging into his scalp. The boy is set to die, and yet he's not indifferent to this minor discomfort. Was it involuntary, or does it betray some extravagant hope that he might somehow live to feel the relief of the knot being loosed. Such a detail brings the reality of a final moment into frightening, sharp focus. Likewise, the micro-expressions of a painted face, the cast of a glance or the curl of a lip, transforms our sense of the human pinioned in paint and subjected to our subjectivity. With such details, we are met with the suffering, the grace, the absent-mindedness and the endless cruelty of humans, but also the sensitivity of the witness, the time taken to make a record and protract these small moments. I find in them a simple physical reassurance that the dead really used to be alive. And staring at these other painted people, we see not only them, but also a partisan partial record of the regard with which the past world held itself, the world before we were born into its familiar grip. Walking away, we know not only that we will, like the subjects of these works, the clothing they wear and the furnishings that framed their lives, like the people who made them, we will one day not be here, but in the best possible sense, it will not matter. There is something very unusual and demanding about these moments of being in contradiction, of simultaneously being in intense proximity and at an unbridgeable distance to the sitter's present. To have one foot in the past and another in our future grave. There's a kind of difficult pleasure in it too, these moments when our capacity for feeling is tested, when we're implicated, induced to feel bad or to feel joy, to contemplate arousal, arrogance, pleasure or grief, And this seemingly solitary experience suddenly invites fellow feeling and a very powerful renewal of connection to our own world. The unsuspended world that is busy, happening, unfolding, whilst we pause to contemplate a fragment of pottery, a chiselled form or painted surface. Some years ago, after descending from the vertiginous heights of London's St Paul's Cathedral, I skirted the interior walls avoiding the oppressively high, empty, God-shaped dome, and happening on a statue of poet John Donne was part pleasure, part relief. Donne, I found out later, had been the Dean of St. Paul's. In April 1631, one month before his death, he modelled for a memorial sculpture. A painter was hired to make a life-size drawing, and though gravely ill with stomach cancer, Don knotted himself head to toe in his burial shroud and stood on a specially made wooden model of a funeral urn. The resulting gaunt-featured full-length portrait was set by his deathbed. And one year on, an altogether unique upright funerary statue carved by master craftsman Nicholas Stone was installed in the cathedral. The surface of the stone is silken, Gravity-defying ruffles of carved fabric frame his feet and crown his newly youthful face. He meets death not with a public, dutiful, holy expression, but with a look of private rapture. A hint of a smile lifts the corners of his mouth. And what completely preoccupied me afterwards were his knees. They are slightly but unmistakably bent, two smooth kneecaps protruding, separated by vertical labial ripples of fabric. I find him beautiful and even a touch erotic. I have a crush on John Donne. This band introduces an animating moment of uncertainty, of downward movement to the upright statue, completely disrupting its modest, graceful piety. His knees suggest an ordinary fallibility, Maybe the onset of fatigue, of doubt, his joints yield little to gravity's sickly pull. This softness, this intimation of vulnerability, invests this otherwise pious effigy with the humanity I can care about. He was, I feel, testing the reality of inexistence and finding the prospect wanting. Don was not posing for an ordinary ecclesiastical portrait in stone, but acting out his future resurrection. He's a lover on the verge of a long-desired consummation, caught between earth and heaven, on the verge of witnessing an everlasting dawn, lips curved, ready to kiss Christ, and hands stir in anticipation of disrobing. Don is enacting a quiet ecstasy, His fierce hope of dwelling bodily, I quote, forever and ever and infinite and super infinite forevers. Maybe his legs are not weak, but tense. The knees not bent with illness and age, but flexing, ready to take a momentous step from the urn, which perhaps he defiantly, even ironically mounted. And with that thought, the urn transforms from morbid pedestal into a springboard to the next dimension. His desire to stage manage his transition from life to death with a performance in stone is testament to vulnerability, to human in-betweenness held as we are in a continuum of time past and time not to come. And Don has done this with imagination, style, even wit. His willingness to perform in extremis, to will what is unimaginable into reality is beautiful. His belief in the power of art warmed my atheist heart. Eventually, I made some slightly feverish drawings of Don based on contemporaneous portraits. I photographed the statue. My preoccupation with the bend in the statue's knees grew. I spoke to an art historian, I wrote about it, and the bend as a motif traveled into other works, sculptures and drawings, and eventually grew into an exhibition. It is easy to write off any special moment or oddity perceived in old artworks as irrelevant. But the past addresses us directly in intensely physical ways, in our cities, on our screens and from behind the glass of display cases or gilt frames. Old artworks don't make the same demands as contemporary, but they still prey upon us. And even if a work is misunderstood or mistranslated into the present by an irresponsible artist, well, at least it features in the nexus of now. If that sounds a little defensive, it may well be because I've been thinking from an ultimologically anxious place. But whenever I think I may never work again, I still go to museums and galleries, drawn by the chance that one of those rare moments when art affects its mysterious power to confuse and to grip me in strange ways might occur. There's also the tantalising possibility of finding urgent questions to ask of the present in a corner of a darkened room. A new and steady thought might just emerge and demand some space in the world, offering a beautiful, if short-lived sense of urgency, allowing me to believe for a while, as perhaps Dawn did, that making art is a powerful way to negotiate the vast schemelessness of life.
1: In 2016, we held the first Ultimology Conference. It featured interventions, performances and lectures from many of the speakers we have just heard from. This could have been seen as the culmination of our work in the university. But instead, it felt like the formal introduction of Ultimology to the world. By this point,
0: we had declared ourselves into being. The Department of Ultimology exists. A department without a physical space, but with a tangible feeling. When we remembered ourselves in the history of art department, we remembered being in a room with a certain atmosphere and smell and way of enacting itself on our bodies. Perhaps this is what we could create. An invisible room, a philosophical venue for looking at endings and imagining possibilities.
1: The university has three libraries that interconnect via an underground concourse. The student of Ultimology, by virtue of the inherently pan-disciplinary nature of the field, frequently crosses this space. One day in early summer, as exams approach, exhausted from long distances and the heavy weight of the amassed literature, she falls asleep at a desk piled high with books. When she wakes, the library is empty. But there is the sound of distant chanting, and from the window she sees masses of students crossing the sports field to leave the campus. With rising excitement, she leaves her desk to join the protest in the streets. corrupted,
5: inept institutions that threaten our future. My name is Salim Kajani, and I'm a third-year student from St. Michael's College. By the time I'm 25, the planet will be at risk of drought, extreme heat and flooding will be widespread and will affect hundreds of millions worldwide. Why are we essentially standing still when the biggest threat to humanity is occurring right in front of our eyes?
0: Having become part of the system, an institution in itself, is it really surprising that we've been crashed by the voice of the youth, a sound of
1: protest calling for action for the sake of our future? It's often said that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. This phrase neatly summarizes how captive we have become to a way of being that existentially threatens us. But the phrase also has another significance. It seems to suggest that if we damage the environment enough to destroy the conditions we need to survive on Earth, it might ultimately be because of a failure of imagination. It's possible Ultimology won't save the world, but we are hopeful that some of what it has taught us can help. Paying attention to bodies, human and non-human, working between disciplines and interest groups, encouraging meaningful reflection and criticality, and giving voice to stories that have not been told.
0: If we are right, It is inspiring that people who are among the most voiceless and disenfranchised children have led from the front in the groundswell of protest
1: that is emerging around the climate emergency. If it is imagination that is needed, then surely it is our collective imagination that will allow us to avoid, postpone, come to terms with or transcend the end.
4: We've been listening to
0: The Department of Ultimology by Fiona Hallinan and Kate Strain, a radio essay making a study of endings in various disciplines. The essay was scripted by Fiona Hallinan and Barry Edward Fitzgerald and directed by Fiona and Kate Strain. The music was by Quivine O'Reilly. Sound design was by Damien Chanel and Kieran Cullen. The Department of Ultimology by Fiona Hallinan and Kate Strain was produced by Kevin Brew. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds and if you'd like to listen back to the programme, take a look at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. The programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.